This is Donna Fiducia, co-host of Cowboy Logic Radio, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Bree Arthur, who's a writer, a garden speaker, and a correspondent for Growing a Greener World TV. Um, good morning, Bree. Good morning. How are things doing in your neck of the woods? You're in Raleigh or somewhere near there? I am. I'm just south of Raleigh in Fuquay Marina, and we are still having lovely summer-like weather with bright sun and blue Carolina skies. <laughs> I'm sure some of our listeners are going to be very envious, those that are up in the Midwest where they've already had some frost and it's cold and horrible and miserable. Uh, Well, you know, I'm originally from Michigan, so I can relate. I've been in North Carolina now 12 years, and not a day passes that I don't appreciate the sunshine in the winter. Yes, that's that's one nice thing about being down south. And I, I grew up in the Midwest, too, and the winters are just too awful. They're just too terribly cold for me. Now, now I understand that you received a very great honor a couple of weeks ago. You were in Denmark. Tell us about that. I was. I was the uh, representative for the Southern Region International Plant Propagator Society. And um, I have been put on the international board for their marketing and development of the society throughout the world. It's a yes. great honor. I'm very excited to help perpetuate this group to a new generation. Yep. I bet a lot of people didn't even know that there was a plant propagator society, much less a, an international one. How long has the group been in existence? Over 100 years. Um, you know, this is a group of professional plant growers, so it's predominantly annual, perennial, and woody ornamental uh, and edible growers. Uh, they're in the wholesale trade, and it's a fantastic society whose mission has always been to seek and share knowledge with one another, and it's really one of the fundamental organizations that keep the nursery industry kind of cohesive, where everybody can express their challenges with any number of problems from, you know, the changes in the mass market to disease and insect control. It's a wonderful society to be a part of. Do you get together and and cuss out some plants that just don't want to be propagated in any normal fashion? We do. We definitely do that. And, of course, we have long discussions on the merits of different uses of rooting hormones, and we go into great detail of the technology behind, you know, propagation systems. It's just a wonderful time for us to all nerd out with this one thing we have in common. It's like getting together with family once a year. (laughs) That sounds like fun. And to go to Denmark, that's got to be pretty cool, too. Oh, my goodness. I don't think my life will ever be the same after experiencing the Danish way of life. It's certainly to be envied, uh, minus their long, cold winters. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I guess you have to be a very civilized society to live where you can only see the sun, you know, during the summertime. That is true. And they make the most of their summers, and they have these fantastic solstice celebrations, and uh, they really embrace... Uh, a lifestyle of of eating and drinking well. It was an absolute delight to see a culture where organic local produce is the mainstream. Um, I really hope that there there will be a day in America when that's the case. 
So do I. So do I. Now, you grow an awful lot of vegetables yourself, don't you? I do, yeah. I actually grow about 80% of our uh, produce, not including fruits, obviously. Uh, so I grow year-round in our one-acre, what I call suburban foodscape, because there's food integrated everywhere with woody ornamentals, and then that changes seasonally, and it's quite beautiful. Um, I'm lucky I live in a neighborhood without an HOA because I would fear that I wouldn't be allowed to grow food in my front yard if I had some of the unnecessary regulations that HOAs can sometimes provide. Yes, so, I, I used, I, I'm a garden designer by, by trade, or that's one of my trades, and it was always a battle with the homeowners associations, um, or almost always. We had to get permission for everything, and um, a lot of times it was just silly regulations. Yeah, unnecessary. I'm not sure you know, if even people with any sort of horticultural knowledge came up with some of the rules. I know that it's a real problem here in, in the Raleigh area, where they basically outlawed growing vegetables in your front space. And obviously, similar to Atlanta, we have a lot of woodland here. And often the only sun that you have is in your front yard because it's roadside. And if you can't grow vegetables there, you can't grow them anywhere. And so I'm happy to see community gardens springing up so that people have an opportunity to garden somewhere. But clearly these HOA rules aren't in the best interest, and I think with millennials buying houses, that's going to have to change. The young people care about growing food now. It's a priority, and ornamentals are second. And a lot of homeowners associations just want you to have a Bermuda grass lawn that you irrigate every week. Um, yeah, it's really so unsustainable and unstimulating and... You know, I think the I, I really I have a hopefully not a not an unfounded hope that as people in their twenties start to buy houses, their perspective is very different on horticulture and plants have to be more than look pretty. And um I think I think there's gonna be a broad change in our approach to the landscape design in, in the next decade. I always recommended to my clients and to the Master Gardener classes that I taught to try to get on the board of directors of the Homeowners Association and try to work for change within them. And I can see a use for Homeowners Association. So you don't want somebody that's parking all his trash cans in the front yard, you know, right in the driveway all of the time. And you don't want somebody with a, you know, beat-up old pickup truck in there. But... Um, but some of the other regulations, especially considering how beautiful some food plants can be. Absolutely. And, you know, with, with a better education to the homeowners on how to integrate food with ornamentals, it only makes the ornamental space look better. It's, it certainly does. And there's, yeah, there's some things that are just absolutely gorgeous, like an eggplant. Oh, eggplant blossoms, they're just, they're just drop-dead gorgeous. Especially right now, they love this kind of coolish, cool short day fall season. <laughs> well, I, they've got a lot of company because I like the, this uh, season, too, quite a bit. Now, what, so tell me what you have in your, in your vegetable garden. What are you growing today? Well, <laughs> I'm in the midst of my, what I call, manic pepper season. You know, I grow them all from seed, and I collect my own pepper seeds and do some hybridizing on that. And um, I can't 
control myself in the spring when I have extra seedlings. So I have 150 pepper plants right now. Oh, my goodness. And they're all producing heavily. So I actually am harvesting between 15 and 30 pounds. Well, I'm busy preserving them so that I can have the taste of summer all winter. My favorite thing to do is actually to candy the peppers. Um, you don't actually mm-hmm. need to seed them if you candy them. I've never heard of candied peppers. Do you do it with uh, hot peppers or with bells, or what do you use? Well, predominantly you would use jalapenos, so I've found you can use any number of peppers. Uh, they make a fantastic kind of sweet relish. We find that we eat them by the spoonful right out of the jar. They're so delicious. So do you chop them up then and then make a, a sugar syrup, or what do you do? That's exactly right. You kind of wring them. You don't need to de-seed them. And you cook them down into a vinegar-sugar solution, which I did this for the first time last year. It was actually recommended by a nursery friend in Tennessee. And I have never in my life used more sugar at one time. And I thought, surely this couldn't be the right recipe. But it is. However, it makes a lot. Last week I actually uh, preserved... 18 pints. Now, I used eight pounds of sugar in the process of doing that. But it makes fantastic uh, holiday gifts. Everyone enjoys a, you know, a jar of sweet peppers, especially in the winter. And when you, after you do the boiling them down in a sugar syrup, do you have to can them, you know, in a a boiling water bath too, or can you just... Well, you can, or you can just refrigerate them, and what you want to do is let them sit for at least six to eight weeks and so they can really absorb all of that sugar, Uh, but they'll last in the refrigerator, uh, you know, three, two to three months, Um, and then you can easily just preserve them in a water bath because it's a vinegar-based solution, so, you know, a 15-minute boil in a traditional water bath, and you can preserve them without needing to have a to have refrigerator space taken up, which is important when you're preserving a lot of food. <laughs> if you have 18 pints, that takes up a lot of refrigerator space, I imagine. Yeah. So, do you do these with green peppers or red peppers, or what, what are you doing? I primarily candy peppers that are smaller than my fist. That's sort of my generic approach rather than doing it by pepper variety. Um, I like to actually freeze my bell peppers already sliced so that they're ready to go on to pizzas for the wintertime. Mm-hmm. And then I also like to core my some of my jalapenos. We have a handy rack um, that is for grilling stuffed jalapenos. And so I have bags and bags of those frozen ready to have the taste of summer all winter long in that way as well. That's a, that's a nice thing to do. I like to have peppers and things like that in the freezer so I can just reach in and grab a handful of them and uh, do what, whatever instead of chopping them, or worse, having to go and buy peppers in the wintertime. Uh, and, when you know you can grow so much yourself, it just kills me to buy produce from the store. You know, I learned a few years ago I decided to, we eat an onion basically with every di- with every dinner, and I grew 350 onion bulbs. And oh no, I don't have a root cellar. You know, I live in a new suburban neighborhood. 
I was like, what do I do with all of these onions? And it occurred to me to start chopping them up and freezing them mixed with peppers so that they're ready for your winter stir fries and pizzas and any other reason that you need them. It's the handiest thing I've ever done. And, you know, you can freeze them and, and kind of have them stacked in, in, in the space, and you, have, you can easily grow enough onions and peppers for your entire year. Yeah. I, I used to dehydrate my onions when I had them. And that worked out pretty well because, you know, after a while you start running out of freezer space, too. Well, that's the truth. I'm, I've been asking for my third freezer. <laughs> I don't know what we would do if we have a power outage. <laughs> yeah, and that's one of the reasons why dehydrating food helps a lot, too, because um, you don't have to worry about, you know, a hurricane coming through or something like that and, or an ice storm knocking out your power. That is so true. And, you know, when you put basically the same amount of work, no matter how you're preserving it, that processing step is really the thing that I I think people don't always take into account. You know, they can understand kind of the, the time that's devoted to planting it and growing it, but they kind of discount the harvesting and processing aspect of growing food. And I hope that I can, through Facebook especially, show people you know, how you have to be logical about it because it really can be a huge devotion of time. And that We have to take a little break right now, but when we come back, let's talk some more about food processing and preservation and how you're dealing with everything in your garden. We'll be right back. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. This is Donna Fiducia, co-host of Cowboy Logic Radio, and you're listening to America's Web Radio, a most eclectic mix of conservative shows.
Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Bree Arthur, who is a woman of many talents. And right before the break, we were talking about preserving her harvest. So tell me, Bree, what else? Do you, do you can most of everything that you do and, and throw it in the and freeze, or do you, are you into dehydrating? You know, I've, I've gotten a little bit into dehydrating, but I think I need to probably devote more effort to it. I've really enjoyed dehydrating um, herbs and tomatoes. Uh, such a decadent way to eat a tomato in a winter time, especially pressed between oil. <laughs> ah, yes. Well, and if you go out to the store to buy it, you're paying a whole lot of money for it, too. Well, you are, and you, you know, you don't necessarily know that it's, it's a well-grown, tasty tomato, and uh, you know, especially when you know again that you can grow such an abundance. If you deal with it in the season, you can enjoy it year-round, and you don't actually have to go and buy it at the grocery store. You mentioned um, freezing your onions, and one of the things that I did like to do with onions is um, put them in old pantyhose and tie a knot between each one and then just hang them up in the pantry, and they would last a good long time that way. That's a great idea. I am so going to do that. It's not, ori- it's not original idea to me. They, the Vidalia onion growers recommended it when we first moved down to Georgia, and they would show pictures of it, you know, where, where they were selling it, because you know Vidalias don't handle very, don't stay very good very long anyway, and this gives enough room between um, between each onion that they're not touching one another, so they last longer. Oh, that's brilliant. And so um, I used to do it that way. I don't raise too many onions anymore because we have very high sulfur soil here, and they're kind of bitter. And um, but I do get big big bags of Adelia onions, and then store them that way, or store some of them in the refrigerator for really long keeping. Oh, that's great to know. Well, isn't it funny how soil problems can affect and change how you grow. I live in former tobacco land and have root knot nematodes and bacterial Dalstonia, and that's drastically changing how I can grow my favorite solanaceous crops through the summer. That That is a bad combination. <laughs> yeah, it especially, is. Especially if you live in a hot, humid climate. Have you ever tried solidly growing marigolds for an entire season um, to get, take care of the root knot nematodes? You know, I do. I grow a ton of marigolds predominantly because I love them. It doesn't seem to really make that big of a difference. And I grow them at the base of my tomato plants. And generally by the end of August, my tomatoes are all pretty infected and I just pull them out. But I have a late season crop this year that I sowed in June and are looking great. So I think maybe tomatoes just aren't meant to grow for six months at a time. <laughs> well, I've grown them for a really long time when I lived up north, and I could protect, you know, I'd start them very early, and by the time I set them out, they were in five-gallon tubs already. But the deal with marigolds is that you have to solidly sow a, a plot with marigolds, nothing else in it, because the root-knot nematodes cannot survive on marigold roots and if you have any other roots in there, like if you have your tomato, they'll just be on the tomato and the marigold won't affect them. It doesn't chase them away or anything like that. Okay. And then at the end of the season, you till in the marigolds, and then you're good to go for another couple of years. 
I used to work for extension too, so I, you know, that was one of the things that that they taught us how to do. And they also did some research that said that if you put a lot of pine bark in your soil, um, you know, just plain old ground pine bark, that that will help reduce the number of nematodes. I don't know what would do, what it would do with your other problem in there, um, but might be worth a shot for you. I'm definitely going to try that. You know, the areas where I have put in trenches of brown pine bark, plants are doing so, so well. So there's something to be said about, you know, the southeast number one uh, sort of material media that we that we can supply, um, having a great antiseptic quality. Yeah, it's it's strange that there's there's finding things all over the country. Different things work for different problems, and the neat thing is that it's stuff that grows there naturally. Yeah, you know, people in the Midwest don't usually have that terrible root knot nematode problem that we have here in the South, um, and they don't need the pine bark that we have in great abundance here. Very true. <laughs> now you mentioned that you're growing marigolds. Tell me about those. Well, I've been collecting marigolds for a long time. You know, the smell of a marigold takes me back to probably my first garden memory with my grandparents. Mm-hmm. So, and it's so heavy in the air at this time of year. So it's really, it's a nice memory to have. Um, and I've been collecting really interesting varieties of marigolds. Some friends on Facebook have sent me uh, seeds they collected in Mexico that are from the Aztecs and a wonderful oh, cool. strain that, that came from Nancy Goodwin at Montrose Gardens and Hillsborough. Mm-hmm. And, of course, more some of its more commercially available varieties, that fabulous soft yellow French marigold. And so I have them everywhere. They're my favorite sort of Halloween cut flower because they're, they're the right colors. <laughs> I had never thought about that for Halloween um, for Halloween decorations. And marigolds, to me, have just been outside flowers. And like you, they were one of the first things that I planted. Uh, my mother gave, handed me some marigold seeds, and, and she had given me a little tiny garden plot of my own, so I planted marigolds, and I planted potato, uh, tomatoes, and I planted some beans starting really, really early. And, and of course, back then... Um, everybody was growing marigolds. Down here in the south, though, they're not, they don't seem to be as popular. They don't, and I don't understand why, because, you know, they really grow into nice little hedges. I actually use them in my knot garden as sort of an architectural feature for the summertime. Um, without a lot of pruning or anything, they, they have this nice dense habit and an incredible amount of color and, Nobody seems to eat them, so they're very useful in that regard. <laughs> well, you, you, I think you may have been getting lucky because one of the problems that we have down here with, with marigolds, or that I had with marigolds, is that um, the spider mites absolutely love them. Oh, I am very fortunate in that I think I have a lot of beneficials in my garden, and I don't mm-hmm. seem to have a spider mite issue. Now, I had a white fly problem this summer. Uh, that's been interesting to try to find out some good biocontrols for. Uh, but spider mites so far haven't been an issue. I'm knocking on wood. <laughs> that, you are very fortunate. When I first moved here, um, the people that had owned the property before used to spray everything. So it was several years before I could build up a population of beneficial insects. There were hardly even any ladybugs around. It was It was pretty sad. But I yeah. spray, well, other than 
uh, insecticidal soap every now and then, and the beneficials generally take a, a pretty good job uh, of taking care of the pests. That in BT, I have to now. I have to admit, I do spray BT, Bacillus thuringiensis, for the nasty cabbage worms. Oh, good lord! How would we live without BT? <laughs> I don't know, but when I, one summer I left a hornet's nest up in the corner by the garage. It was kind of high, and it was far enough away that it wasn't going to bother us as we went in and out and off of the porch, and. I watched those hornets carry worms from the garden all summer long. They took care of them for me. That was the one year I never, I didn't have any corn earworms. I didn't have those nasty worms that get on tomatoes and dig into them and into peppers. I didn't have any cabbage worms. It was wonderful. Well, I'm going to make sure I never, ever eliminate one of those nests. Yeah, they they do get really unhappy though, and the last week, as after their queen left, it was a little. We we walked around the other side of the house, but other than that, it was just wonderful to watch them work. And then they died, and the the wrens went in there and cleaned out the rest of their nest. So full cycle. Yeah, full cycle, and. I, of course, I can understand if somebody is allergic, you don't want to leave a hornet's nest around. That's not, just not something that they want to do. But to watch them work, Bree, was just absolutely incredible. Well, I so, think, you know, if they can just locate their nest in a place where it isn't too intrusive, that could be a new trend. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, you have to know where the nest is. You don't want to have it in an area where you're going to be working all the time. And you have to be able to locate it so you can stay away from it and keep the kids and the pets away. We did have to destroy one hornet's nest because it was one in one of our cat's favorite climbing trees back when she was an outside cat. And she'd run up there, and I was just terrified that she would get stung sometime. Oh, yes. Then when you have pets, you have to do things a little bit differently. Now, you mentioned marigold. You mentioned marigolds for Halloween decorations. What else are you growing for Halloween decorations? Well, it's funny because you know this is a time of year when you have to think about frost, so you start cutting stuff way back. And as you're going through the garden, you can sort of repurpose a lot of things. One of my favorite things that I've just done this year is spray paint the scapes from daylilies. You know, they come right out of the ground. They pull right out without any effort, and they're really lightweight, and I spray-painted them silver and put them in a vase with cotton, and they look creepy like bare branches. Um, I love to do that with papyrus, too, because that almost looks like a spider web, you know, the giant papyrus. Mm-hmm. Now, the, you said that daylily scapes. Um, do, they, do you have buds on the top of them, or do you... No, I mean, yeah, you know, they're, the they're pretty gone. much done flowering, and they've already finessed, and the foliage is starting, you know, to turn yellow. And these scapes, they just pull right out of the ground. Um, you know, they, they're they just going to be compost. This is a great way to use them and compost them in a couple of weeks. I would never have thought about that. And you mentioned papyrus, too. Um, to do you grow your own papyrus? Is it hardy for you? It's not. It's not really winter hardy. You know, the problem with papyrus is that it needs it needs heat and light in the winter time in order to really keep growing. It doesn't it doesn't really go through dormancy with grace. 
So that's generally one of my treats that I'll make sure that I get from an annual nursery every spring. But, you know, at this time of year, they're enormous. And, of course, I grow them in bog pots because they really like to be in a tremendous amount of water, and that way they don't dry out. Mm-hmm. Um, but every year I still will throw them into my greenhouse with this unnecessary hope that I'll get them to come through the winter. <laughs> and in order yeah. to fit them in my greenhouse, I have to cut them down, and it just kills me to get rid of all of that material. That's not enough to make paper out of. You know, it's just two or three pots. Uh, so I love to use them as decoration, and they look so appropriate at Halloween because you put a bunch together, and it, it really does look like a spider's web. That texture is so perfect. And they, the people uh, in the Audubon societies are recommending that people not use that fake stuff, that fake uh, spider web stuff, because birds are getting caught in it. Absolutely. And, you know, it's amazing how... All this synthetic kind of plastic-driven de- decor, you know, fall is a windy time, and Halloween decorations are one of the number one things that get blown away and not retrieved. Um, so there's something to say for decorating with uh, materials that can blow away and decompose. It's a little more responsible. I, I absolutely agree with you on that. We're going to have to take another break right now, but um, when we come back, I'd like to talk to you about some of our, your other Halloween ideas, We're going beyond the old hay bale and cornstalk routine. We'll Excellent. be right back. Quick stakes. That's Q-U-I-K steaks are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick steaks, Q-U-I-K steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuff's Food Link was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedstuffsFoodLink.com to learn about your food directly from the source, the people who work every day to provide it. FeedstuffsFoodLink.com, connecting farm to fork. This is Donna Fiducia, former anchor at the Fox News Channel and now co-host of Cowboy Logic Radio. And you're listening to America's Web Radio. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Bree Arthur, who is a writer, a garden speaker, and is working with Growing a Greener World TV. Now, we had Joe Lample on, and uh, so you know Joe from Growing a Greener World. And now Bree is, is involved with that, too. That's pretty cool. It is very exciting. In fact, the episode they shot here uh, this summer on plant propagating will be out very soon. So hopefully everybody can catch it. That's wonderful. We're one of the few states that does not have that show on public TV, and but I watch it on the computer. So that's an Their website is so usable that it's almost better than than watching it from the network. You know, at least it's on your terms when you're available to watch. And if a cat jumps in your lap, you can you can pause the show while you're at it. 
and it's got recipes and all sorts of little show notes and things. Now, right before the break, we were talking about you you were using papyrus to imitate spider webs, and I want to go back again to remind people about how damaging some of these plastic Halloween decorations can be. Um, I didn't know that they were number one decoration that wasn't retrieved, but I guess it makes sense because mostly they're very cheap. They're very lightweight, and it's the change of seasons. It's a windy time of year. When I saw the thing about birds getting caught, and big birds, too, there was one um, one picture of an owl that was caught in one of those Halloween spiderweb things. And, you know, they're big birds. Oh, that just appalled me. heartbreaking. Oh. Uh, and, of course, it wasn't found until it, the poor bird had expired. That made oh. me really sad. Um, so... What else can people use? I know a lot of people like to decorate for Halloween, and um, you think of straw bales and scarecrows and corn stalks and pumpkins. What else might they use? Well, you can up the sophistication a bit. <laughs> you know, here in the South, we have Magnolia grandiflora, the southern magnolia, which is a fabulous broadleaf evergreen with dark, lustrous green leaves, and the underside can be very velvety brown and I have a friend who inherited a nursery. He has a degree from UNC in art history. So taking on a nursery was something not necessarily intuitive for her. And she reinvented it as a space of 15 acres of field-grown southern magnolia that's used for cut purposes. This hmm. is uh, westernfarms.com. She has uh, created a, a fabulous line of southern decor that she really starts in September for, you know, autumn wreaths, and she includes uh, hydrangea paniculata flowers and okra stems and pine cones and lotus, dried lotus seed heads with the magnolia grandiflora, which just gives this lustrous backdrop. It's, it's so elegant, and it's fantastic, not just as, you know, a wreath. I've actually taken my fall wreath and made a Halloween display on my dining room table by using it as kind of the centerpiece with a pumpkin on top and then using different colored peppers and, and uh, homegrown garlic to decorate on top of that. And it looks great. And it's perfect for a table setting. And it certainly isn't a straw bale and a, and a, um, a scarecrow. That's a cool idea. Now, now you mentioned you using lotus pods. Do you do you leave them natural, or do you spray them, or what do you do? You know that it can be up to you. In this case, they've been left natural. Often by the holiday season, it'll you know, can spray paint them bronze, silver, gold, something that will really reflect the the lights that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that's the thing. You can actually repurpose decorations that you're using for Halloween and Thanksgiving. And, Take them all the way through Christmas into New Year. Um, it's it's a wonderful way to use materials from your garden that are free of cost and give you this great added value. What else do you put in in with their recent things? Well, at uh, and starting about now, we add quite a lot of conifers to the magnolia wreaths, and um, that actually helps them. They, you know, the magnolia branches can shrink, and then over time, as they dry, you might have some branches that come out. The conifers don't tend to dry out in the same capacity, 
So adding some arborvitae or camisiparis or cryptomeria actually helps keep the wreaths really sturdy. And we're finding, I still actually have my wreath from my wedding several years ago, the southern magnolia holds up for years. Do you do anything to treat it? I know some people have said that you need to soak it in glycerin. Do you do that, or do you leave it? We do it? not. Um, I know the Magnolia Company does that. They are primarily using straight Magnolia leaves versus branches. Uh, we used to actually coat everything with mop and glow, and I laugh because literally the smell of Christmas is that lemony scent of mop and glow for me. <laughs> I've been <laughs> at Elf for Western Farms for almost a decade now. But we have found that that's not really necessary. Um, and then the way people generally use kind of a real material wreath, they, they have a, you know, a 6 to 12-week expectation for its life cycle. Uh, so it doesn't have to be preserved forever. But unlike, you know, a, a wreath made from Aedes or Picea, which shatter and make quite a mess, these southern magnolia wreaths are very tidy. Uh, so that's one of the real sell- selling features. And then knowing, knowing that they're absolutely a southeastern resource, it couldn't be more local. It's really a great thing. What, would, what might people up north use? Can you think of anything that would be an equivalent? Well, you know, northerners don't have the broadleaf evergreens that we have to choose from, but certainly Buxus is uh, a broadleaf evergreen that, you know, is commonly used for holiday decor. I don't love the way Buxus smells, so I would probably spray it with something. Yeah, Buxus does kind of smell like cat pee, doesn't it? Yes, it does. No, not the thing that you would want to have in in an indoor wreath. Yeah, I was just thinking when I was growing up up north, I don't remember any um, broadleaf evergreens. Well, you know, broadleaf evergreens don't like that desiccating wind and the sustained cold. Having devoted the last five years to working with cold-hardy camellias, uh, there's just, uh, you know, there, there's just a, a part of that plant that doesn't like to live north of the <laughs> That's yeah. true of most no, no, a lot of A lot of people can manage with rhododendrons. That might be a, a possibility. You know, we don't yeah. grow rhododendrons so much down here because they don't like this, our, our clay soil. We have to fancy them up a lot. And my mother grew rhododendrons uh, up north, and in the wintertime to protect them from the wind, she'd, Dad would put stakes around, and then she'd put burlap around it. So that's fairly common still. Um, I wonder how well it holds up. You know, we've done some cutting of rhododendron, and like you said, it's, it's not such an abundant resource for us here, especially in the central Piedmont, North Carolina, where we have heavy soil and a lot of root problems. Uh, So it holds up to a degree, but certainly not as well as the southern magnolia. The good thing is um, Western Farms is now actually doing mail order, and she's selling all over the country. And I've been sending my parents in Michigan magnolia reeds every year, and uh, they, now they have florist shops that want them and garden centers because who doesn't want a little piece of the south in December? <laughs> yeah. I used to collect some seed pods and things like that and send them up north to to my sister-in-law, and she made absolutely wonderful refusing magnolia seed pods and pine cones and things like that. Well, you know, another thing, uh, pine cones, I love pine cones, but I also love sweet gumballs. 
And I know that they are such a pain. But, you know, if you are able to collect them, you can use them in the raw. You can actually glue them together. You can spray paint them. They're, they have a million uses. They've got a great texture. Uh, I, I see pine cones and sweet gumballs as these two abundant resources of the southeast that we, we, could put, we could put some monetary value behind them if we were creative. <laughs> For those of those of our listeners that are up north and don't know what sweet cum balls are, picture something the size of a golf ball with little spikes all over it. It's brown. And one of the reasons why people here in the south don't like them is that the seed pods drop in abundance. And if you have them in the middle of a lawn, it's a problem. Or if you're on if they're over your sidewalk or something like that, because you slip on them and you it's kind of like what like walking on ball bearings. It's not real pleasant, but they do make wonderful things. And for those of you that are stuck with a sweet gum in your yard and you're sick of it, plant a pine tree next to it. The pine tree will drop its pine needles right there, and then the sweet gum balls will fall into the pine needles, and you don't have to worry about them. That's a good suggestion, and they grow really well together, so... (laughs) Yeah, they they occur naturally together in the woods. I've got... uh, three pine trees on the corner of my property and a sweet gum just happened to seed itself in there among them and it works out wonderfully well i don't we you know you don't have to mow because you've got all that pine straw down there it's a nice mulch the sweet gum balls fall into it and it's right next to my magnolia so if the magnolia you know stuff pods get dragged over by a squirrel or something like that they can just stay there too it's just not a problem Okay, so we have pine cones, we have sweet gum balls. How about, um, do you do any ornamental grasses? I do, and my favorite right now, of course, are the Molenbergias, the straight capillaris, the pink muley, and uh, the white variety called white cloud. Um, you know, they are so beautiful, and they're clean. I love cuts that don't shatter and make a mess. And they'll so hold up for weeks. You don't have to spray them with hairspray or anything to get them to stay on? You do not. The muley grasses are particularly well-behaved. Uh, you know, some of the panicums and, uh, well, certainly the miscanthus can make such a mess. Uh, so I don't even bring those inside my house anymore. I stick exclusively to the Mullenbergias for cuts indoors. Uh, and they're so pretty. I, I just love looking at them out here at this time of year when the light is low and it's going right through them. I, I would almost hate to cut it. Well, you don't have to cut much. That's the thing. You know, I I might take four or five pieces for an indoor arrangement, and that, you know, fills that kind of intermediate need where I have dahlias or zinnias or marigolds you know, as the front layer, and that just kind of makes this soft transition, and they're so beautiful, and you enjoy them just as much indoor as you do outdoor, because think you're sitting in your house eating dinner and you have this arrangement that you get to enjoy. So I think it's important to bring your garden in so that you have that full understanding of the lifestyle of gardening and why you garden, so that not just so you have a beautiful garden for your neighbors to enjoy. But that's a good thought. I, I hadn't really considered it that way. Um, but this is a whole different life. Uh, the, the kids 
you, you young people, <laughs> I should put it that way, uh, completely approach things differently than, than we old fogies did. We're going to have to take a break in a little bit, but when we come back, I'd like to talk to you about some of the other flowers that you use and grasses and how people might put them together and where they can get, go to get some ideas. We'll be right back with America's Homegrown Veggie Show right after this break. Quick Stakes. That's Q-U-I-K Stakes are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes, Q-U-I-K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. This is Denise Simon, host of the Denise Simon Experience. Join me every Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern on America's Web Radio. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Bree Arthur, um, who is a fantastic... I, I just can't get over, Bree, how much you do. And you're a plant propagator, and I understand you are one of the best plant propagators in the country. You're an artist. You grow vegetables. You can vegetables. Well, I don't claim to be well-rounded. I live and breathe horticulture. <laughs> don't ask me about sports. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I won't because I don't do sports either. <laughs> of course, cats. Cats and gardening are, are free reign. <laughs> you um, know, I just think that if everybody saw how how wonderful it is to indulge in the art and I call it a lifestyle because it is more than a hobby. Um, of gardening, it, it's so it's so exciting to see that young kids are interested in it, and people of any age can suddenly become a gardener, and it can become this sort of life changing passion. And the people that are really in gardening are like me; they're really excited about it. They they can't they can't control their excitement. It's it's boundless. So. I remember when I was a, a newlywed and well, I lived in a, in a second floor apartment. There wasn't very much gardening space, so I would garden over at my parents and help them with theirs. And then it got to be winter, and I didn't have a garden anymore. And, you know, living up north, you don't do a whole lot of, necessarily do a whole lot of gardening in the winter. So I started. Um, propagating things. Anything. My mother had lots and lots of house plants and, and many dozens of African violets. And so I, every time a leaf would break off, she would um, pop it in dirt and make more plants. And so I started doing that too. 
and eventually I was so nutso about this that I had 300 African violets in a three-room apartment. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had them on the windowsills. I had them under lights. And it ended up being one of my part-time jobs because I would sell them to a local florist. I'd get them nice and big and, and absolutely gorgeous, and then I would sell them. And so I remember the excitement about gardening. And I'm just so – you know, we had a decade, you know, maybe in the 80s, where people just weren't gardening. And it broke my heart, and I was afraid that gardening would be gone forever. So it makes me really happy to hear that that this new ger- generation of millennials is gardening again. You know, gardening in a big way, a way that this, you know, I mean, I think the people in their 20s now have lived their whole lives not necessarily trusting you know, commercial farming practices. I think mm-hmm. GMO is just sort of ingrained in their mind as something that isn't necessarily high in nutrition and better. It's not necessarily better for our health. And, you know, the whole slew of complications that go along with the way commercial agriculture is heading. And these, the people, at least that I see in their early 20s, prioritize what they eat and they want to have some control and some influence over that. And they are actually the ones that are really connecting horticulture to that. And that it's a, a step that I was happy to see very well integrated in Denmark. And so I think it's very possible here. It's just taking a little longer. We have a lot more people to convince of the value of nutrition. And then the exercise that you can get from growing at least some of your own food, the, the lifestyle gardening is, it's so rewarding in so many ways. You're right, and it, it is kind of a holistic, you know, it takes care of body, mind, and spirit. You mentioned the exercise part, and I've seen some statistics about how much exercise people can get, you know, exercising their biceps and their triceps and their glutes and everything just by getting out in the garden and working. Gosh, absolutely. You know, why would you go to the gym every every day for an hour when you could spend an hour outside making your space more beautiful and having an influence over what you consume? It's so much more sensible. <laughs> oh, I think it is. And, and of course, I, I, like I said, my generation grew up gardening. It's just what we did. And our grandparents gardened and our great-grandparents gardened. Um, and, and then... We lost that generation, and I'm so happy to see them back gardening. And, and I love that you are in the forefront of this, too, because you're all over the Internet, aren't you? <laughs> well, I am. I, I, uh, I turns out I really love uh, social media. <laughs> I like to take pictures, and um, I think that what I'm doing is like a giant experiment, and it's fun to get to share my successes and failures with people and it's been a, a really great way to meet so many, so many people that, you know, 10 years ago, I would have never had access to friends all over the world that exchange information on, on every aspect of horticulture, from growing camellias to producing peppers and recipes for canning peppers and sending seeds of plants that I would have never had access to. And I'm so thankful that Social media exists because it's it's a wonderful interactive platform to teach the necessary skills for understanding how to garden successfully because nobody wants to do it and fail. 
so it's you know through through photographs and and advice you can learn so much and it's exciting that people pay attention you mentioned photographs and i will be putting up some photographs that you sent me up under the America's Homegrown Veggie Show Facebook page so people can see. I'm looking at some of them now. And, Bria, I just can't imagine um, how you how you think all these things out. Right now I'm looking at one with a pumpkin with red and green peppers on top of it and surrounded by, oh, yellow peppers and orange peppers and the garlic that you mentioned and lotus seed pods and a pine cone. In the, in the back corner, it looks like you have a whole bottle of uh, um, a whole couple of whole pans of more peppers of different colors. I'm not kidding when I say I'm harvesting <laughs> pounds and pounds of peppers <laughs> every day. You know, for me, fall has always been about decorating with peppers, and they'll last as decorations for several weeks after you harvest them. So it means you have a little wiggle room in your preserving cycle, which is nice, because with tomatoes, you don't necessarily have weeks on end. You have to make that sauce when those when those tomatoes are ripe or they rot. So peppers give you a, a, a nice little wiggle room where you can enjoy them for the aesthetic and then enjoy them for their eating purpose. Yeah, have your have your cake and eat it too kind of thing. Exactly. <laughs> now tell me, I'm, I'm looking at something else in your picture that you sent that I will be putting up on, on the Facebook page. And it... It's branches of something, and I can't tell what they are. Those are the daylily scapes. Oh, so those my. are the old, you know, the old flowering stems or stalks uh, from daylilies. And don't they look incredible spray painted, especially with that ground cover of, of cotton? Let's face it, cotton is so enchanting, especially for a former Midwesterner. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I, I, I'm, I'm looking at this, and, and I'm sure all of our listeners are going to be running to their Facebook page to listen, look at these. Um, I, I never would have believed that those were daylily scapes. It, it blows me away. And, you know, that's obviously a vase that doesn't have water in it because the those are dried. Um, so, you know, you don't want to put a dried item in a vase with live flowers because then you'll it'll get moldy and will rot. Uh, so, you know, you can kind of combine your elements in those ways. You can use fresh flowers and dried flowers, but maybe in groups, but not maybe in the same base. I learned that the hard way. The dried stuff rots a lot faster if water is introduced. <laughs> yeah, but, but, you know, it's simple enough to get several containers and mix them up, and, you know, you can even use it for adding height to your decorations. Yeah, and then as the season changes, you can use those scapes and other branches, you know, to hang ornaments and be really creative. It's all all from your garden at no cost. It's it's a real treat. I hope everybody will go outside and start looking at their plants, not just from the value in the garden, but as a cut perspective, because it's kind of a relief when you get to use it for just the aesthetic inside your house. Yeah, these are just absolutely marvelous, Bree. Now, tell me about the different kinds of peppers you have. We've got a few minutes left, and, and you've got a great variety of peppers. Oh, I have the best peppers this year. Oh, my goodness. My extension agent, Gina Myers, uh, gave me seeds last year of peppers that have now become my – I'm so addicted to these peppers. So those small red ones that you're looking at and um, – 
some of the orange peppers that are also within this decoration came from Gina. And basically, they have the look of a really hot pepper. Um, you know, they look like a habanero, quite frankly. And they almost have that same smell. They, they have a peppery smell, but it's a sweet flavor, and you don't have to deceive them. I tend to roast them whole. Uh, with the stem on so that you have a little thing to hold on to and you just eat them like candy. They're amazing. Um, and so I've been spreading these seeds to everybody that will take them. I took thousands of seeds to Denmark and actually got them into the hands of people from all over Europe and have sent them to my friend who's the gardener for French Laundry out in Napa Valley. Uh, and I hope that they will all spread them to all of their friends and these peppers from Gina can just kind of be the new phase for all pepper enthusiasts. Now, tell people how to save pepper seeds. Oh, gosh, it's so easy. You know, it's, it's one of the easiest things. When you're processing them, you know, just cut them out. And I like to dry them on paper towels or in a small bowl. And I generally leave them in my site. Uh, I put them on top of my um, countertop for a couple of days, let them dry out, and then I put them in wax paper, labeled, uh, generally 25 to 50 seeds per packet so that I can hand them out with ease, and then I still have plenty for myself. And I store them in the refrigerator uh, until it's time to sow, which I always sow my peppers the last week of February. Well, that's a great thing for people to know because I know a lot of people save tomato seeds and it can be a little bit of a messy process by the time you let it ferment and and then pour off the, the scum that forms and everything. But peppers are so very, very easy. They are. And, you know, I've decided that one of my great joys in January is going through seed catalogs, placing mm-hmm. tomato seed orders. So I don't collect any of my own tomato seeds now. I let that be... My main indulgence on a cold winter day because nothing brings me more pleasure. <laughs> yeah, I bet you can put a whole world of hurt on your credit card too when you go through the catalogs. Well, you know, at least with seed, you're not investing a lot. It's 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 still less expensive than buying the plants already growing, and and certainly you can really go nuts when you're buying rare woody ornamentals, which is what my specialty is in propagation, and that can be a very expensive hobby. So (laughs) seeds are a very, very economical way to indulge in horticulture. (laughs) We're just about to the end of the show right now, but I wanted to remind people that um, all this will be up on our Facebook page, and if you need to contact us, that's a good place. Or if you have a question for Bree, you can um, put it on the Facebook page, and we'll get it answered for you. Thank you so much, Bree, for being with us. I look, I'm really looking forward to seeing you on Growing a Greener World TV and see your garden. And uh, I, I just can't wait to see it. You said that's going to be coming up very soon? Yes, I think um, I heard a rumor that it actually might come live on the website this weekend. Uh, oh, it certainly great. will be posted on Facebook. Okay. Well, thanks again for being with us. We've got a, um, this is all the time that we have for today, but we'll be back talking more gardening next week on America's Homegrown Veggie Show. This is Donna Fiducia, co-host of Cowboy Logic Radio, and you're listening to America's Web Radio.